ashamed of the gospel, y'all. Uh, it's the power of God which can save us all. In the gospel, the righteousness of God's revealed. Yeah. And who lives by faith, the righteous Welcome to Theology Matters, where we discuss theological issues through a biblical worldview. The gospel preached in clarity for the sake of the elect and for the glory of God. Here's your host, Austin Ryan Griffin. Welcome, brothers and sisters. Theology matters. All proper and true theology leads to doxology, just towards the praise of God. All right. And so we want to jump into this today. I want to talk about two words that some people have probably not heard, probably not spent a lot of time in and, and digging into them, but we want to deal with it. And I want to talk about something because this is an interesting time. There's a lot of stuff going on. And uh, I'm going to kind of talk to you about some unpopular, uh, kind of like an unpopular in- interpretation, like the account in First Samuel where David faces off of Goliath. Um, and, and I was thinking about the story of David and Goliath, and it makes me think that this little guy had to face this big giant. And sometimes it makes me think that me and you have to face big giants in our life, impossible situations in our life. And how David looked him in his face and threw that rock and it buried right into his forehead, which tells me and you um, that we have to, like David, face giants in our lives. And how King Saul put his arm around him and it just didn't fit. That is a sign that this world's wisdom, we cannot face our giants using the world's wisdom because this world's wisdom does not fit on us. But if we trust and obey God and we will be like David and we will be able to destroy and defeat all of our giants in life, whether that be a job, a boss, a situation, a sickness, a disease, what is your giant? What are you facing? Are you going to be like David? So let me kind of <laughs> let me kind let me kind of talk about this a little bit because if does that sound familiar to you? Does that interpretation or something like that sound familiar to you? And if it does, you ought to be concerned, and this ought to even terrify you. Because that is a gross, horrible handling of God's text and a dishonoring of His Word. But I understand because I was raised under a type of man-centered, Arminian, Wesleyan, pragmatic philosophy that I was raised under this type of interpretation of the Bible, where men would read themselves into the Bible. And uh, there's Chris Roseboro from Fighting for the Faith. He coined this term, and he used two two words. He used exegesis and narcissism. And if you know what narcissism means, or he used exegesis and narcissism. Narcissism is the love of self. Uh, and he used exegesis, and he combined those words, or maybe he used even eisegesis. He combined those two words. And he made up a term called narcissus, and I think that's hilarious. Chris Roseberg coined that phrase. Uh, you should check him out, Fighting for the Faith. Uh, real good guidance on discernment ministry. I don't believe a lot of people do discernment ministry right. I think he does a, well, a good job of it in a lot of instances. And I want to kind of talk about that. Or what about this one? Are you struggling right now? Is there things going on in your life? Well, Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans of welfare and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. So no matter what you're going through, you know that God has not planned evil but welfare for you, not calamity but hope and a future for you. And we see this text being used as kind of a proof text to kind of live your best life now in some circumstances, or kind of like in a kind of in a mild form of a, uh, kind of like an application of, you know, just to encourage you when, when you're going through something, something like that. Um, but what does that text actually mean? Because interpretations like that should terrify you. 
What does this actually mean? And, and, and what I want to talk about today on this podcast, real quick, is exegesis and eisegesis. So what does that mean, exegesis and eisegesis? Exegesis, uh, I grew up, uh, you know, in a ministry where this was kind of mocked. Uh, but exegesis, let's, I want to talk about exegesis versus eisegesis. And we're going to get into what those actually mean. So... Um, if you are ready, we will jump in on this. So exegesis is a careful exposition and a critical objective analysis of the text. We're talking about interpretation. We're talking about what does the text actually mean? Where do we kind of get this word? Uh, that word exegete means literally to lead out. Um, we get it from the Greek word in John 1.18, uh, we're literally, uh, it literally says that God or Jesus explained him, explained God. Exonizomai l- literally means to lead out, to explain, or to make known. The interpreter is led to his conclusions by following what the text says. And so this is actually what Jesus did. He represented and interpreted uh, and uh, explained the Father. That's what that means. That's where we get that Greek. That's where we get that word exegesis from, from the Greek. It's what Jesus uh, did. He exegeted the Father. This is where we get this from, guys. He exegeted the Father, explained out. So it's coming from the standpoint of what the text actually teaches. And then we're going to talk about eisegesis. And, and, and I'll define eisegesis for you. The it's the opposite approach. I'll say a wrong approach. Eisegesis, which is the interpretation of a passage based on a subjective, non-analytical reading that does not take into consideration the context, the word meaning, syntax, etc., etc. Which means, literally, to lead into the interpreter interjects or interprets in the text or interjects his own ideas, philosophies, traditions, presuppositions into the text. That's eisegesis. That's bad. Exegesis, good. Making it mean whatever he wants. That's what eventually happens. You you could make the Bible mean whatever you want it to mean. But not in the right way. Exegesis does justice to the text. Eisegesis is a mishandling of the text and leads to a misunderstanding or a misinterpretation and an inconsistency and is contradictory to what the Bible teaches. I know I'm, I know I'm using some big words here. Bear with me. We have to discern the true meaning of the text. What was the author's original intent? Now, this is what you want to take in consideration. This is what this is what eisegesis does not do. This is what exegesis does. We have to discover the true meaning of the text. What was the author's original intent, and how would have the people of that day, how would they have understood it? A telltale sign of biblical ignorance and false teachers is that they do not teach the Word of God accurately. They manipulate it according to their own self-deception, according to their own greed, according to their own presuppositions, according to their own agenda, and according to their own ministry traditions. It's very important. According to their own ministry traditions. Um, 2 Timothy 2. 2.15 says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not, in, does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Do, do, do y'all take that into consideration? Like, seriously, do y'all take that into consideration, especially when, you know, you have certain people teaching you the Bible? Or what about this? 2 Corinthians 2.4 I love this scripture. Look what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 2.4. But we have renounced, renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So 
what they renounce. They renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways. What is that? It's practicing cunning and tampering with God's word. It's unaccurately teaching God's word. And so Jeremiah 29, 11 has always been used as this, you know, coffee cup verse, this, um, you know, live your best life now verse, or even in some instances, maybe in innocently by some people, uh, as an encouraging verse to try to encourage people. And God knows the plan that he has your life. And we use it on this individual, this individual basis to encourage maybe another believer, an individual. But is that really what Jeremiah 29, 11 means? Have you actually got everything you've been taught and test all things and examined all things according to God's word? People either are lazy or they don't want to or they don't care, but you might be shocked when you find out. Is uh, You might be shocked when you find out that a lot of the stuff that you've been learning uh, through kind of like, and I mean this in a negative sense, like cultural Christianity. This is a message from the pro- – and so uh, I, I guess my goal, what I want to do, let's just go through Jeremiah 29.11 a little bit. Jeremiah 29.11, and then I will uh, kind of offer a little bit of exegesis. And, and so it's very important. Uh, what I'm kind of do is going to give a context to it. So that way you know actually what that verse teaches. Um, you know, D.R. Carson has this quote. I love the quote. Uh, you know, a, a text used as a, you know, a, a proof text or a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. In other words, if you do, if you have one single isolated text, you can make it mean anything, and it's it could be used as a proof text for whatever. But you cannot merely proof text. Uh, you you have to do more. You have to have context, and that's very important. So, I I want to kind of kind of add something to it just to kind of help you out and give an example of what it is to uh, do exegesis and. There's no way I, that that's a big subject. I can I can encapsulate all this in one episode of exegesis versus eisegesis. But we've all heard people reading themselves into the text. For instance, I used to have leaders that would say, uh, "Do not stretch your hand out towards God's anointed," or they would use kind of an authoritarian view, a watchmany view of biblical authority, and they would put themselves in the middle of the biblical narrative as if they were Moses, as if they were David, and they would apply that principle towards themselves. See, I'm the leader, uh, it's biblical, and God has appointed me, etc., etc. So do not touch your leader, do not touch your, you know, the, the Lord's anointed. You're talking about themselves. And and really what that means is don't speak a word against, don't dishonor, etc., etc. And that's a proof text. That's a false interpretation of those stories. Because it's using the text in which way the apostles didn't, and it's taking it out of context. Um, and uh, authoritarians do that a lot. And basically, I'm the Lord's appointed and anointed. You can't question it. And I believe there's a lot of people walking around with that idea like they are appointed, and they are most definitely not. Because it will show up by the fruit of their personal holiness and their personal understanding with what the Word of God reveals. And so I know a lot of people who have weak theological backgrounds, but I believe they are uh, genuinely called by God for service as an overseer, and God, through His sovereign grace, works that out, and their biblical understanding grows and matures as well as their personal holiness. Uh, But I believe some people just did that by religion, and they're not there. They're imposters, most definitely imposters. So uh, before I go on a tangent, um, you've all heard all kinds of interpretation of Jeremiah 29, 11, you know, for I know the plans that I have for you and and et cetera, et cetera. And that was, you know, that's used to whatever that scripture has been used for multiple ministries to say here, do it the way we're doing it. In other words, the plan, the word plan here means our ministry methodology. And it's sad. It's sad. Uh, so check us out. Let, let me, um, 
this is a message from the prophet Jeremiah, and this is a judgment of Israel. Um, uh, you see that God clearly lines out, and I'm not going to do all this for you, but go and read Jeremiah 26 and 27 and 28. He talks about judgment there. Um, and so basically what is going on is that Jeremiah is proclaiming judgment on them. So this is a passage of judgment. So this was written to a people who were taken into exile. They were taken as slaves because of God's judgment. They were taken into Babylonian captivity. So historically, this is God sending his people into Babylonian captivity. Uh, you read all that, and, you, and I want you to just read the judgment that, you know, God, the reason why God is sending them into captivity and this is, this is the situation before God sends them into captivity. He's warning them. He's telling them. He's proclaiming it. That's going to happen. So this is a pre-exile. Uh, this is before it happens. And so basically at these time, these people, the people of God are experiencing something that is literally changing reality for them. And I have to think right now with all this COVID stuff going on, you know, I could we could relate in some sense that you have a lot of stuff changing. Your reality, as you know, it is changing. And, and these people, God's people at this point in time, Israel is facing something that's changing their very reality all around them. Uh, something that's bringing fear, anxiety, insecurities in circumstitua- uh, certain situations, circumstances. That would cause them to question some things. And, and what they would inevitably question, is this just of God to do this? Is this, you, you know, where's the goodness of God? Is God sovereign? And so they are questioning whether God is keeping his promise or, or will keep his promise. And so this is very, very important. You have to catch this. And so... Um, I kind of want to read, you know, verse 11, uh, but let's go to verse 1 of the chapter, and you can kind of get an idea, so that way people can't just manipulate you, or people can't impart their own misunderstanding into the text. And guys, let me hear, let me, let me say this, when people start to hear me say people are deceiving you, they're manipulating you. What they automatically think is that people are doing it out of intention or uh, kind of this malicious evil intent. Um, I would say no, not all the time. People are doing it out of their own ignorance. They're doing it out of their own ignorance. And you have to be careful because you don't want to be led astray by someone else's biblical ignorance. Um so I read verse one. It says, Now they are, now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent to Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets of all the people who Nebuchadnezzar has taken into exile in Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jerichiah, the queen and the queen mother. This court officials the princes of judah jerusalem and the craftsmen of this and the smiths had departed from jerusalem this letter was sent by the hand of el shai the son of sephraim and and i don't know how to say these names all that great grahamai and helikai whom zedekiah king of judah sent babylon sent to babylon to nebuchadnezzar the king of babylon saying thus the lord of hosts the god of israel to all the exiles now i don't want to jump ahead of myself i'm going to wait because i'm I'm already jumping to verse four but before i read verse four i want you to check this out so this is actually these these letters these words we're about to read are actually a letter to the exiles the priest uh, the exiles, the prophets, and the elders. So this is sent by a letter. I don't know if a lot of people knew that. That's what's going on. So you see in verse 1 that this is part of a letter. This is very important. And, and these people are about to be led to a harsh captivity. They are about to be led to a harsh captivity. This is going to be a very harsh thing. This is what's going on. This is the context. So in verse 4... He literally says, thus says the Lord of hosts. So so anytime we go through something, situations, hey, you know, of course we're going to question our faith. But check this out. 
God is sovereign. And that's kind of the first things that people question when all this stuff happens. Is God just? Is God sovereign? And this is a very evil thing that's about to happen to Israel. They're going into judgment. They're going into slavery. They're going into being, they're being exiled. They're going to be slaves and servants of Babylon. So, you know, you have to catch this because it, the first thing we question, you know, like, it, you know, when bad things happen, we automatically blame them on the devil. Oh, well, this happened. And, uh, you know, and, and we read verses like, you know, Jeremiah 29 11, uh, I know the plans that I have for you, uh, not, not calamity, but of, you know, prosperity to give you a future and a hope. And, and we say, well, if this bad thing happens, it's not God. It's the devil. The devil just got the upper hand. Well, because this situation happened, well, because we make up all these reasons and we seem to not have a working and functional understanding of God's sovereignty in our lives. And so look at verse 4. Is it the devil sending them into calamity? Is it the situation? Because literally, it's what's interesting about this text is that I know the plans that I have for you, not of calamity, but of welfare. And I'm quoting different verses at different versions. But literally, what happens when the very thing that happens to you is calamity? Huh. What are you going to do with that? You can just blame it on the devil? You can just blame it on man? Or even just the fallen world? Catch this. Look at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So who sent them? Yes, God's sovereign. He sent them. So actually this, 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 um, we read, let's now skip down to verse 10. It says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. So this is, he's saying 70 years. This is very important. This is 70 years. This is important because people, you know, they use it on a here now individual basis. Uh, let's, I'll skip down to verse 12, uh, and I'll read the for, for, you know, I'll read verse 11 for, you know, the plans that I have for you, for, you know, the plans that I have for you declares the Lord plans of welfare and not calamity to give you a future and a hope. Then I will, and look, it says, then you will call upon me and I, and come to pray to me and I will listen. You will seek me and find me. And when you search for me with all your heart. So, I want you to catch this. God's sovereignty, God's faithfulness, God's goodness, and God's justice is not measured the way you think it is. This is important. So, this, is, this promise actually didn't, wasn't actually fulfilled to about 100, 120 years. So, that is not... Uh, he wasn't speaking to the, the then-now generation this is actually a it wasn't speaking to just them this is a multi-generational promise there's about 140 or i would say 100 to 140 years from the time of this promise was actually made into fulfillment so you hear that's what's going on and we as american thinkers we hear us 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 it's all about us and what i'm going through and me 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 and we have this man-centered, me-centered view of reading the text in the Bible, and it's it's eisegesis, it's narcissism, it's narcissism, it's narcissism. But I want you to understand something. Something is hard to hear in the English, but it's plain in the Hebrew. Verse thirteen it says, "You will seek me and find me. Then you will search for me with all your heart." So that word "you" and it says, "I will be found by you." That word you, all those yous are you, they're in the plural. So it's kind of like you all. So this is actually a multi-generational um, promise. 
And a lot of these people who had heard it at that time were not alive by the time it was promised. Is that how people are using this text? Because that's what it means. That's what it means. That's what's going on. And that's what's really going on. And some will say, well, well how... Well, what, what good is the text then? It's not encouraging. Um, yeah, it's talking about God's sovereignty. And God is sovereign because who is the one who sent them into the situation that they're in? And I want you to catch this verse 14. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and you will restore your fortunes and will gather you from the nations and from the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. So who did it? I will bring you back to this place where I have sent you into exile. So this is, this is awesome. Um, I want you to catch this, that we have a God who is able to work all evil, all good, all circumstances, all situations, all economical, financial, all national relationships, global situations with nations. He is able to work it all out for his remnant, for his chosen, for his saved. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, he's able to work all that stuff out. And so, what is the here now? And some will say, well, what, what does God tell these people to do? Here's what's, what I find interesting. What does God tell these people to do when he tells them they're going into exile? Verse 4, he's really, uh, I want you to catch this. I don't know, we'll see. Yeah, yeah, verse 4, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent you into exile to Jerusalem. Look what he says in verse 5. Build houses. Live in them. Plant gardens. Eat the produce. Take wives and become fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that you may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Wow, do not decrease. I want you to catch that because anytime there's like a world pandemic, a great depression, anytime another nation's taken captive by another nation, there is a depression and you know how do they, how do people live? How do imagine getting this letter and God is saying, "Yeah, you're going to be taken by a wicked and evil pagan nation." And and some, you know, self-righteous Israelite might say, or even all of them, or even me and you may have the question, how would God, why would God let a, a wicked and evil pagan nation take captive a godly nation? Well, that's the problem. There's only one kind of nation, and that's wicked and evil and pagan. There is no godly nation. There is no godly, there, there, there's no perfect people. There is no perfect nation. That's the point. That's the point. Believers... Yeah, we want to make America the best we can. We want to make our situation, our schools, our churches, et cetera, et cetera, the best we can. But there actually is no perfect place. Me and you are looking forward to the new Jerusalem. And look what he says do. I love it because a lot of people think they got to be serving in some form of ministry. It's like they look past the ordinary miraculous things as being a father paying bills, uh, cultivating what you have, being a good steward on the small things, etc., etc. And he tells them, imagine hearing that. Imagine hearing that. And look what he tells them. Go build houses. Make a family. Grow produce. Very, 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 very interesting. And then also, you know, what? what is you know, a people, a godly people going to do in a pagan nation. I love this. Seek the welfare of the city where you have, where I have sent you into and pray the Lord on the, on its behalf, pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will have welfare for thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst or your diviners deceive you. And do not listen to their dreams, which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name, and I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Isn't it interesting that God warns of false prophets in Jeremiah 29, 
nine. That's the context. That's what's going on. It's interesting. I mean, I don't even know if y'all know that's there. Some of you do. It's great. But it's very important. And so what are we supposed to do here, the, the here and now? Uh, live. Live. Do all things to the glory of God. Women, men, do all things unto the glory of God. That is very important. And so this promise is actually a multi-generation promise that God will save a remnant of Israel and fulfill his promise to bring them back to the new Jerusalem. This is not an assurance text that your financial state will work out fine. This is not a, a, a proof text that you know your your workout situation or your 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 auto auto situation you know will work out fine. It's just not. It, you can see this text being so abused by people, and so you got to understand. Uh, you know, especially David and Saul. I've heard that abused so many times. Uh, you know, like basically Saul was after David, and do you have the heart of David? Dare to be a David. Be like David. Look at his heart towards his authority, his leader. Look at his heart. Um, I'll have you know that David was operating as a foreshadow and a type of Christ there. I want you to catch that. That's very important. Don't know if you knew that. And if he would have done anything evil, it was not about the importance of God's authority. It was the importance of God, of David being holy and Christ-like and not sinning to ascend to the throne. I've heard leaders literally use that as and basically put themselves in the position like, you know, uh, if you had, they've used it like if there's a bad leader and all that stuff. That's just, I'm sorry, that is so eisegetical. And so eisegesis is where you end up reading yourself into the text. And so a lot of people read their situations inside the text and don't do that. That's unbiblical. In fact, there's even a more richer understanding to Jeremiah 29, 11, that God was sovereign and that though the evil may have happened to Israel, though there, there was judgment, look at God's grace saying, I'm about to judge you by the wicked hand of Babylon, but I have I know what I'm doing. I'm working it all out for the good for those who I have called. I have called, and he's going to preserve them, and he tells them what to do in a pagan nation and preserves his people and didn't forget his promise and will fulfill, you know, so God is sovereign. It's a resounding absolute, it's a resounding yes, God is sovereign. God is just to do so. Uh, I, I think once we are in the position where we start, where we start to question God's justice based off a m philosophical framework that's based off our thinking, I think that's dangerous. I think you don't understand it. I, I, I think it's. I think we should stray away from that, uh, quite honestly. And so, we honestly we have a God who's able to work out all evil, good circumstances, situations. To whatever the praise and glory is, he can uh, he work at all things to his praise and his glory. You see that in Ephesians to the praise of his glory. You see that in Romans. You see that everywhere, guys. And I want you to take. Uh, I really, really, really want you to take that into consideration um, when you do that, uh, or when you when you're reading the Bible. Is let the let the Bible. And so, let me give you some rules. You have context, the, the, the three simple rules is context, context, context. You observe what the actual text says in its context, its immediate, its, its surrounding context, and its book and the big Bible as a narrative. You read what it is in context. You read it and let, it, let the clear interpret the unclear, and you put it in its context. You observe it. You make... Uh, you make application based off it being consistent with the context. Jeremiah 29 is not about you staying in a men's home. It's not about your job. It's not about financial situations. It is not about any of that. Very important. It's about God's sovereign sovereignty 
in the midst of judgment, in the midst of calamity, and how he judged them and kept his promise to them. And it's a beauty to know that in the midst of all evil and all wicked circumstances that God is sovereign and he is able to work everything out for the good for those who are called for his glory. That's beautiful, guys. That is, I mean, I don't even know how you, that is absolutely and utterly beautiful. And so eisegesis seeks to ruin that and put it in another context and utilize it for its own purposes that is where it gets dangerous. That is where it gets dangerous. Do you have the road to Emmaus method? Jesus, when he came to them, he broke down the scriptures and began to share himself about himself. And what did he do? He went to the old, went to the through the law and the prophets. It's very important that the Bible points towards Christ, not your your own interpretation. In fact, um, and I'll pull some stuff up, and then after this, uh, the first Peter literally says, first Peter literally says that, that Scripture is not for one's own interpretation. And that's very important. Are you handling the Word of God rightly? Is your pastor handling the Word of God rightly? Is he making true or false interpretation? If he's functioning in eisegesis, that's dangerous. That's very dangerous. Is he exegeting the text is he preaching from what the word of god actually teaches or is he, does that not a big deal because if it's not a big deal and, and and there's an insidiousness there's a wickedness and, and like a, a a cunning wickedness to people who don't care to put the word of to accurately represent the word of god they're going to push their own agenda their own misunderstanding they use the word of God to manipulate. And I want you, you just to be wary of that. Um, and so that that is just um, just some real quick, a real quick thing on exegesis and eisegesis. You can see how you can make the, the narrative about David when he slayed Goliath, which is meant to point towards Christ slaying your death and sin. An impossible enemy to defeat, your death and sin, he slayed it. You're the scared Israelite over there, if you want to read yourself in the text somewhere. You're the scared Israelite off somewhere in the distance trembling. King David is a foretype of Christ. That story is meant to point towards Jesus. How dare someone to steal the glory of Christ? Think about that. Think about that. The Bible's meant to point towards Christ and glorify Him. Jesus, the Son of God, the incarnate Son of God. But why in the world would you... See, that's the fulfillment. Why, why would you want to interpret it to be something else? Well, a lot of people want to interpret the Bible for whatever they want it to be. And there you go. Um, that, that is dangerous, and you just beware of that. Um, I, we've, you know... Some of us have probably all engaged in some form of eisegesis. But that's okay because if the more you put the Bible in its context, the more you get understanding of what the Bible is actually teaching, the more richer the revelation, the more richer the illumination will be in such a way. And, and when people don't you know, have a solid grounding in what they know, when bad things happen, they don't read their Bible— they are tossed to and fro from every wind and doctrine. They cannot suffer. They can't go through stuff. They can't live in the midst of a pagan nation. They can't. Without being swallowed up and influenced by the world, they live an unholy life. I mean, theology directly impacts your doxology. In other words, how you praise, how your responsive praise. And, you know, true theology always leads to a proper and glorious doxology of who God is and what he's accomplished in his Lord Jesus Christ. And so, you know, you got it. Theology matters at this point. Because if you don't have a theology that believes the word of God is sufficient and fallible, and there's one interpretation of what the Bible is teaching, and the Bible is the infallible interpreter of the Bible, um, 
it's dangerous. It is dangerous. And the Bible says evil covered this world when they, when they, it says the evil covered the face of this world when they did what was right in their own eyes. Leaning on your own understanding, Proverbs 3, 5. You do not lean on your own understanding the same way we, in, we interpret what Jesus said. We interpret a letter. We interpret a story. We have to get all of those things in line so we can actually have understanding of what's going on. You see it all the time on the news, CNN, mainstream media. They give you half videos, half stories. They push whatever narrative, and they're lie. They, there's lies constantly. Um, and to me, the mainstream media is one of the biggest, one of the biggest ways to deceive people as a whole. And so please don't get your theology from Don Lemon. Please don't get your theology from TBN. Understand what you know because you've read it in context. You know what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches some stuff in context. The Bible is very important. You can get all kinds of verses of the Bible and take it out of context and make it say whatever you want. So it's very dangerous. So I want to encourage everybody. Eisegesis is very important. I can't tell you how many cults have started because the leader had his own personal revelation that he got from the Bible, which was unique in history, and and he did it by using a form of eisegesis, reading himself into the text. You see it with Mormons, you see it with Jehovah Witnesses, you've seen it, oh my gosh, you've seen it, I mean, how many cults, you see it all around. Do not be deceived, because there's people who do know the text good enough to where they, if they want to deceive you, they could. And they themselves are deceived, going from bad to worse, deceiving, being deceived, and deceiving others, the Bible says, and I think it's 1 Timothy. So beware. First is Second Timothy, one of them. So beware. Be careful. No exegesis. So as a as a, as a as a Christian, your desire is to be Christ-like, right? Well, what did Christ do in John one eighteen? What what did Christ teach in John one eighteen? This is very important. What did Christ do? What would you know? What did Jesus do? He explained the Father. That's what he did. He explained him. He was an accurate representation. If Jesus did not accurately represent the Father, which I believe that would have been impossible, but Jesus accurately represented the Father. That's what he did. In your study, do you accurately represent what the Word actually teaches? Again, you see this, John 1.18. No one has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten God, monogenes theos, the unique God, is who is in the bosom of the Father. He has exonigzomai, explained him. Very important, brothers and sisters. And so eisegesis is reading, I mean, and just think about how many forms of eisegesis you've heard. You know, like you need your saw in your life because if you don't have your saw, because if you do have, if you do have, if you don't have your saw, you won't be the person God's called you to be. And if you do have your saw, then that means you're, David, mic drop. Shh. And it's just ridiculous. You see it. You see people using the Bible and what it does not teach. And what it does not teach. And so you got to take into understanding eisegesis is reading something in the text that's not there. Reading your own. So let me ask you this. If a, if a Christian can be deceived. If a person can be deceived, how do you know what they are telling you is the truth? You don't, for sure, unless you know by the Word of God. Psalms, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping the Word of God. Very important. So, uh, you have exegesis and eisegesis. Um, 
Todd White, he seems to be making a big old splash because he's come out. I've listened to his sermon, not all the way through, but I've listened to his sermon, and I'm very encouraged by some of the stuff that I've heard him say um, about repentance and him not preaching a full gospel about the law of God. And, you know, it, you, you know, the 2020 had goes down in the books. I would have never thought I would have heard Todd White which at one point before I really took deep in understanding of what I believe theologically, um, and then you know, and then I started to examine him, and I I seen a lot of problems in his theology. I've been knowing about this. Um, I you know I, I liked he was real cool. I've met him. He was real nice to me. Real cool. I thought great. Here's a guy that can you know influence a lot of these people who don't really care about theology in a good way. And I found out his teaching was heretical, wicked, evil, deceived, misled. And so then, uh, you know, I met him at the airport, took a picture with him. It's on my Instagram. It's interesting that after all that, he comes out and he, you know, what he's saying is very encouraging. And I just want to encourage everybody. And I want to say, be very careful because there's already people judging him, saying this isn't repentance. I think people should be very cautious, but hopeful because you got to believe you preach the gospel to to wicked teachers but do you and and you and you hope to help their followers but do you actually believe that they themselves can repent the bible says that he saves to the uttermost the gospel saves to the uttermost he's he was no worse than paul no worse than saul before he became paul and so I just, you know, 2020 goes down in the books because I would have never thought I would have heard Todd White regurgitating Ray Comfort Living Waters talking about the law. So I'm hopeful. Um, and he's like, Spurgeon, this guy is awesome. It's like, yeah, of course. <laughs> and so I'm very hopeful, but be very careful that repentance is not based off what you assume repentance to be based off of or what is your since it doesn't please me it's not repentance um we don't know if he's really repenting emphatically we don't know we have good signs and good reasons to be hopeful now cuz what he said really encouraged me what he said really uh convicted me and so we know what his repentance would look like. His repentance would look like him renouncing his teaching, renouncing his false signs and miracles, and stepping down from his position because he's not qualified to be a teacher. But if he doesn't do that, well then then you'll you'll have a better idea. But these these don't these heresy hunters just come out quickly and say it's not repentance, it's just damage control, it's just this. You don't know that. Do not be very careful. You don't know that. It's frustrating that people are willing so quickly to condemn him. You have no idea. And why would you not want to give him the benefit of the doubt? I mean, do you know how wicked I was? How wicked were you? And, and you know, I've had... People tell me, I didn't think you can ever get saved. So be hopeful. Pray. Do you really have faith that someone can repent? Because ultimately, we want to go after the, the one who's propagating false doctrines and teachings. And I'm praying, pray, brothers and sisters, that he doesn't just talk about repentance, but he lives repentance out. That God produces godly sorrow so much to sanctify him in such a way that he stops this, this these underhanded, these crafty, these false ways, this false biblical teaching, um, these false miracles, and this, you know, you're so awesome gospel. Pray that God, for his glory, causes repentance. And do not be so um, quick to judge off a basis in which you do not know. That's very dangerous. You don't know the heart. And listen to the message. I was cautious, but I was hopeful, and I'm very encouraged, and I pray that he repents. Now, that was a, you know, a, that was a minute back when that video came out. He's already had another Sunday to preach. So, you know, time will tell. We don't know. 
he himself has engaged in a lot of eisegesis, a lot of false teaching. But when he's starting to put the Bible in context and starting to preach rightly, um, let's be like Paul. The Bible says, like, rejoice for the, the gospel was preached. Regardless of how they preached it, whether contempt, whatever motive of greed, of pre- whatever, the gospel was still preached to a group of people that have never heard that. And rejoice in that. So um, be praying for Todd White and his repentance. And be praying for me. Be praying for uh, more content. Uh, I'm looking for more stuff to come out with and just talk about. um, Be very careful uh, what you listen to. Exegete it. Find stuff. You have so many resources. If you want to contact me and get some resources, I would love to give you. I would love to hook you up with some resources. Um, But you can know the Bible and what it teaches and put it in context. And you can recognize false teaching. And you can recognize when people are making mistakes and errors. And you can recognize when yourself is doing it. That way you know what the Word of God teaches. And that way you can be uh, built up and equipped for every good work. And that way you you can help and serve others. Bad theology hurts people. And so theology matters. Theology matters. And so very important. So I just want to encourage everybody, go to my page, Theology Matters, like it. Um, hit me up if you want to support. Um, I don't have a Patreon yet. Uh, I don't have no way where you can support me yet, but I will go there for those from my faithful that are listening. I want to encourage you. The Bible's very clear um, that Jesus Christ um, is the king. He's reigning. The kingdom of God is here and now, and he's reigning from his throne, causing all things to work for his glory. You are a part of that. Be good fathers. Be good fa- Be good husbands, wives. Serve in your local church and whatever that is. Go preach the gospel. Share the gospel with your neighbor. Speak truth with your neighbor. Go preach the gospel to them. Serve. Um, talk to someone with, about Christ and reach out to people. And we love you guys. I love you guys. And I will see you later.